0: Hi, my name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Age Research. Also the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. And you're listening to Reframing History.
1: Of frustration, of discord, of burning in every cell, burning
0: in every cell, burning in every cell, burning in every cell. That mix of a crowd and a little bit of a speech from John F. Kennedy is a great way to start this episode of the new season of Reframing History. In season two, I'm really interested in this question of what is it that we mean when we say digital humanities. To get at that, I've been asking people who do Digital Humanities their definition and trying to find out more about their work and how they approach it. So for this season, I started out by talking to Kathleen Fitzpatrick. She's a great choice because in part, her title is Director of Digital Humanities here at Michigan State University. But more than that, Kathleen's research focuses a lot on the impact of scholarly communication. So in this conversation, we get at her definition of the humanities and our pathway to a place where she deals with the question of scholarly communication and public good on a daily basis. Let's give a listen to our conversation. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, <laughs> Thank you for joining oh, me. Oh,
1: thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: So uh, this season of Reframing History is all about Mm. And one of the standard questions I'm planning to ask everybody, regardless of who they are, is how do you define digital humanity?
1: I define digital humanities as that work that gets done in the overlap of the Venn diagram between humanities and technology, and that happens in a lot of different ways. On one hand, it can be using um, technological tools to do work of the kind that gets done in the humanities, ask the kinds of questions, whether they're historical or literary or about art history or what have you. Um, but using computational tools that do processing of the data and that assist the researcher in in the findings that come out of that work. Or, on the other hand, it can be asking more traditional humanities-oriented questions about the computing technologies that that we're working with. So it can um, include digital media studies and questions about the ways that social media are changing, how we interact and communicate with one another so forth so my sense of digital humanities is that it's um it's super broad um and that it's it's a, a constantly shifting and changing field as both the tools shift and the questions shift and we start to think about new ways of approaching the kinds of interests that the humanities has always had
0: right well that's a great a great answer and uh that gives me the do what I should have done, which is start out by saying, like, you're director. Did you name the director of Digital Humanities in Michigan State University. Yeah, so I got that definition ready to go <laughs> when I needed it. You right? got that definition <laughs> ready to go, and I'm really impressed. Um, and But that actually also touches on my second question for you. I know that uh, when we talk about you, when we look you up on the internet, and you're one of the, you know, you reach a certain status where you have a Wikipedia entry. Did
1: you know that? I did know that. <laughs> I knew it because um I, I how did this come up? I, I maybe I googled myself or something like this and it came up as one of those funky little cards. Right. And it had my full birth date yeah. on there and that really kind of freaked me out Yeah.
0: Around. I have a Wikipedia injury too. So yeah. it's not Yeah. It's it's a thing. It's it, it, it it like a I, thing. I feel like you reach a certain level and you have a Wikipedia injury. Right. But, you know, right. like, wow, what do I have Wikipedia injury? <laughs> but um uh, your work and the humanities have a long, really long history, really going mm-hmm. back to the earliest mm-hmm. period of the work. And one of the things that I think that characterizes a lot of the work that you do is around this idea of community. Yeah. So what do you think is at stake when academics create uh, online communities?
1: That is a really interesting question. And I came to this business of thinking about community and community spaces online um, in a kind of backward way I mean my my original plan was to revolutionize scholarly publishing and to really think about you know new ways of disseminating articles and monographs online and you know full open access um, distribution and discussion around that work and it really quickly became apparent to me that I the thing that we were missing was not the tools to make that work or to disseminate that work. The things that we were missing were the people who needed to be present and willing to work in that way in order for work to get transformed that way. So it became really clear that what we needed to focus on was building a community that wanted to work together online, that had some stake in the kinds of conversations that they were able to have in that kind of space, as opposed to the kinds of things that they were able to do in print through journals and books and so forth. Um, So you know, I think part of what's at stake for scholars in participating in and developing these kinds of online communities is the the potential to open their work up in ways that make it more visible to people outside their immediate community of practice um, and that can make it more approachable and accessible to people who might not necessarily recognize right off the bat, they might not assume that they're really interested in this particular kind of project, but might come to it through some roundabout way um, that leads them into really serious discussions of the kinds of work that, that we do as scholars. So I think part of what's at stake is is making scholarly work more focal in mainstream conversations about really serious issues that we're facing. Oh well,
0: um, yeah. That yeah. is interesting because um your new book is called Generous Genuous Thinking. Yeah. Uh, the University and the Public Good. hmm And like your previous book, this one has been open for a while for public yeah review. Like yeah. you you have have a manuscript out there. It's gone off to the publisher now. Mm-hmm. It's coming out. Um you just had a, a a reading, a sort of like talk on campus here. Yeah. But um, in that book, and I read the, the sort of online version, you talk a lot about this idea of public intellectualism, what I would describe as public intellectualism, and the difficulties that academics have with that whole process. Yeah. And I, I actually find this really interesting because I think about this, I've thought about this a lot in my own context. Yeah. Um, and I was really interested in that whole chapter, but I would really love you to talk about how maybe, and I, I think about this in my own context, I think that maybe one of the things that's helpful mm-hmm. for the new humanities, one of the things that's helpful about this humanities for academics, that it creates these structures where the academic part is yeah. still there, yeah. but it's also still, it gets to be public. right? Um, Which is a really complicated thing that runs into this really big problem of open access, which I know you also talk a lot about. Yeah. So, um, can you walk people through your vision that you kind of talk about in terms of like that public sphere, that digital humanities sphere, and the synergy that's possible there? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I I will will do my best (laughs) in walking through this. Um, One of the things that we've seen in recent years. Um, and this you know goes back really to the 80s and the beginning of the Reagan Revolution in the United States is a real divide um, in public sentiment around higher education and what its purposes are, um, how it should be delivered, how it should be paid for, and so forth. And we're now at a real crisis point in which Um, Public universities are receiving minuscule support um, from the public for providing education. Public universities are are required to do increasing sorts of philanthropic fundraising in order to maintain the services that they provide, and a lot of that happens because the public doesn't recognize the publicness of public education, right? There is this sense in which education has become a private good. Right? Right. rather than a public service and part of my argument in generous thinking is that if we're going to turn that around, if we're going to turn to the public and say in fact these institutions are here for you and we are building strong communities and we are working toward a larger sense of public good um, than what is just happening amongst us on campus, we really have to start making the work that we're doing on campus publicly visible, publicly accessible. It has to be out there and it has to find Purchase within a purchase being a bad metaphor, but it, it has to find
0: purchase in the third definition, yeah, right, exactly.
1: A toehold or you know, some kind of grasp traction within the public traction that's a much better word. Thank you. Um, traction within the public who can look at the work that we're doing and say that I understand that is worth supporting, right? So I make the argument in generous thinking that there are some really key aspects to the ways that scholars work now that have to be made more public in order for this to come about. Um, Open access is part of this, right? Right. Nobody can care about your work if they can't get a hold of it. right? right? If it's in a journal that's only in top tier research libraries nobody's going to find it. Nobody's, I mean nobody who doesn't have access to those kinds of institutions already.
0: Right, so just as a way of um, definitional clarification for sure. people who might not be aware, when we say open access we mean uh, scholarship that is available in a free and open digital repository. Absolutely. And they look, they can look several different ways, mm-hmm. but um, probably the one that was most easily findable on the web is uh, academic commons associated with either a university or mm-hmm. a learning institution mm-hmm. or some kind of professional organization. Absolutely. Um, many colleges have academic commons. And it's sometimes really complicated what can go in there. Right. Sure.
1: Uh,
0: but what it is, it is basically the work that has been published by the people who are mm-hmm. on faculty, uh, whatever status it could be, you know, uh, talk about tenure faculty, whatever, yeah. staff, uh, that they are put there deliberately so it can be findable.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, many of these comments are either. Uh, through some sort of third party or they're through some sort of like specially created uh, apparatus uh, right. so it depends on the institution my performance institution we uh, paid something called BP press mm-hmm. to create mm-hmm. our academic comments but other large larger institutions state institutions tend to use things are out of the box they're open source meaning like they're free to use free to manipulate, free to change right to their right. own, so.
1: Yeah. So there are there are institutional repositories like that that are usually hosted by libraries. Right. Right. That where um, the faculty and staff and sometimes students as well right. um, at the institution can deposit their work and have it preserved and have it findable on the web and have it freely accessible to anyone who wants to download and read it. There are also um, other routes to open access, so publications that are freely available and open on the web um, that are the official publication, right, right. rather than you know the, the version that gets deposited in the institutional right. repository. So like Open Library of the Humanities has a whole series of open access journals um, that are pretty fantastic. But again, I mean the, the whole key to that is just making the stuff findable and accessible and free out there so that people can read it and care about it. Right. So that's, that's one part, I think, of this business of getting academic work visible and usable and, and cared about by the broader publics than just those people who are already on campus. But another part is really thinking about about the the register in which that work gets done, right? So right now, scholars write for each other, and they write in a particular kind of language that often closes other people out of a conversation, right? The more densely theoretical, the more critically rigorous, you know, sometimes it becomes impossible for anyone who's not already indoctrinated into this particular kind of investigation to participate. And so it becomes really important Especially today, for scholars to think about publishing in a range of different forms, right? right? We want to have these insider conversations amongst ourselves. I think it's still really important. That this is how fields get advanced, but at the same time, we need to be able to like, give that that elevator pitch, right. or right, like the write the op-ed that tells. People, why this kind of research in a university is important? Why it's not just like insiders kind of talking about things that don't really matter in the real world? Right. Because all of the work that we're doing does have real-world consequences. We've just got to make the translation in a way to make clear what that importance is. Some of the time.
0: Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting you talked about mainstreaming um, academic information mm-hmm. and, and and the complexities associated with that and. I have a lot of experience with this particular question in part because I deal with comics. Right? right. Until people actually know what they are. Right? Like, it, it's yeah. not as if, like, my dissertation is on uh, Gilded Age and Progressive Era Planning. No one cares about that. They care about the implications of it if I explain it a certain way. Right. But if I just say, well, yeah, I wrote about Gilded Age and Progressive Era Planning, and go, like, mm-hmm. oh okay. uh, But I say, oh, I wrote a paper on Black fans, They're like, let's talk about that. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so what I once explained to a student is that like a lot of my work is either complicating what people think is simple or simplifying what people think is complicated. Exactly. Right? right. So whenever I talk about comic books, I always go like it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yes. but I also know that when I was reading your bit of talking about mainstreaming, how scholars need to engage that the complaint that I heard and I'm sure you've heard it too is that mm-hmm. I talked to them for an hour, they shorten it to thirty seconds mm-hmm. and I like totally miss my point. Right. Uh which I think lends itself towards this question like that's why you need to get out there and save yourself.
1: Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Rather than having the reporter between you he and the public. Like, yeah. Right. Being um, able to make that point yourself.
0: Right. But the I think the question and I think this will be important question for a lot of academics is how do you position this process and it mm-hmm. is a process oh right? totally, totally. Um, if you look at some of the things that happened over the last few years uh, I'm thinking in particular the African American mm-hmm. intellectual history society they have a really strong the people involved they have a really strong narrative about why what they do is important mm-hmm. and how it fits within the broader process of being an academic and they make a very particular argument. about The things that you do here are a step on to this other thing that you're going to do as an academic. But, you know, that's primarily historians who i have often argued have a really long history of being in the public square.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, for other people doing things that are not necessarily quite so accessible, and, you know, despite how we might talk about it, History is still something. So why, if you say it, they know what it is. Yes. How do the other people who are involved in in works of the humanities? Is this is this a thing that humanities has a special ability to do, or is this like a broader process that every discipline can be involved in? Like this is, I think, a really important question.
1: I I think that at least certain fields within the humanities have have a special facility with this kind of movement between different. Forms of of discussion, you know, make as you say, sort of um, making things that seem simple more complex, um, but also making things that seem really complex clear, uh-huh, yeah. right? Um, it's it's part of the work we do in the classroom all the time, is making that shift um, in in different registers of the ways that we're approaching something. But I think this happens in a lot of different places. Scientists who are doing really complex, high end. Um, theoretical work have to be able to translate that work into something comprehensible for grant applications for instance right. in order to make clear the importance of the work they're doing and its implications and there are also you know a host of scientific publications that are Public-facing, right? right? So scientists, I think, are getting more and more practice in this process mm-hmm. of taking um, work that would be otherwise impenetrable right. and mm-hmm. making it it clear um, for the public. I think humanists, in certain ways, assume that everybody ought to understand what it is that we're doing. <laughs> um, and I think we we at times, even though it seems like you know we ought to have a particular facility um, with speaking to a broad culture, um, we need more practice at this. Um, it's not something we're we're trained to do in grad school, for instance. Right. Um, you know, so I'm thinking about. I mean, you you were talking about how historians have long long history in the public square, right? Public history has been a thing for a long time. time. And there have been battles around it, right? Like trying to get it taken seriously and is this really history or is this advocacy or, you know, something else entirely. Um, I think there is a perception that something like public literary criticism doesn't exist, right? That this is like that, that scholars don't write for the public when they're in in literature fields and in fact I think first of all it's not true Right. Um, but secondly it grows out of there's a fascinating argument by um, Gerald Graff about this in a history of the profession that he wrote that looks at this early 20th century moment of divide between um, sort of philologically oriented scholars in literature departments and critics, and critics were were public-facing, and they were really thinking about ways of of helping the public read and figure out what to read and and you know interpret the things that they were reading, and that was seen at that time, in the early 20th century, as not being sufficiently serious right, for the field to have a place on campus. If it was gonna have a place on campus, it had to become scientific. And so there's been a sort of pushing away of that public-facing mode for a very long time. It's something that we really desperately need to recuperate, and I think we're finding really interesting projects that are doing that recuperation right now. If you look at um, some of the the journals like the Los Angeles Review of Books, books right. um, like Public Books, right. you know there there are, there are lots of academic projects right now that are really attempting to enter the public sphere and thinking about criticism of the kind um, that might once have been rejected.
0: Well, you know that that's a, a really important point, and it brings me to like my last sort of like. Question for you because as a faculty member here at MSU, you actually have a title and you're director mm-hmm. of digital humanities mm-hmm. at uh, MSU. Which uh, I want to just say that we're in the Matrix Lab here mm-hmm. at MSU, uh, which personally to me is very exciting <laughs> <laughs> because like MSU is like digital Mecca, like yeah, oh, they everything have there. Uh, So it's like awesome. But it's also a place that I think is in a unique position in terms of like both a burden and a blessing associated Mm -hmm. with that status. Mm -hmm. So what does DH look like here Uh becomes a huge sort of like benchmark around how it will look everywhere. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. So
0: as a director, what's it look like here? Ah,
1: that's a really interesting question you should ask. Um, You know, it looks complex. Uh, Matrix is one of many DH-related centers and labs and programs and units and initiatives on campus, and DH at MSU, the thing that I am director of, is a sort of federation of all of those different things that are happening on campus, trying to get them to, to... share resources, work together, think about collaborations, um, and really make the full breadth of what's happening here on campus, which is really quite extraordinary um, known. Matrix is perhaps the most nationally and internationally visible face of of DH and MSU, but there's also the Digital Humanities and Literary Cognition Lab in the English department. There's WIDE, um, which is in, in the Writing, Rhetoric, and American Culture department. And I always forget the new acronym for WRITE. It was writing in digital environments originally, and now it's writing interaction and I digital experience okay. is what it is now. Um, no one with them. Yeah, <laughs> if, um, there is, as you know, Cedar, um, right. the Center for uh, Critical Diversity
0: and Digital Aid. Thank you. I'm actually in that one. Yes, <laughs> you yeah. um,
1: And there's there are more things happening besides, and right. so we really want to be able to make the full spectrum of everything that's happening here on campus known, to make it much more visible, and to really think about where we might build some bridges across these various entities to think about how we can, can work together on, on what DH might become here. I mean, one of the key things that I think MSU has going for it within this world of DH is that it is so publicly focused, right? that being the, the prototype for the land grant college uh, right. in the United States, MSU has had this long standing, very public focused mission. And so we're able to take DH research and think about how it can serve communities, um, think about how it can build better connections across um, areas within Michigan and beyond, and that I think is, is um, really quite extraordinary. So, um, we're also thinking globally. Um, right. You know, a lot of the work that's happening here at Matrix, and um, then of course our annual global digital humanities symposium, are really attempting to think about how the work that we're doing um, with these new technologies is connecting areas that um, that are are able to work in collaboration and learn from one another um, far better than in the past.
0: Yeah, well, it's really exciting to always think about all the things that are happening here at MSU. Yeah. Uh, So I always, like I said, I always try to keep these conversations short, but as a way of uh, exiting, is there something that you think people should know that they don't know that you want them to know?
1: I think the one thing that we didn't really touch on today um, that I would like to put in a plug for, if that's all right, is um, Humanities Commons. Oh, right, yes. Which is now, um, since I'm I'm project director on Humanities Commons, it's affiliated with MSU, and we're um, really thinking about the next phases of the project's development. Right, Humanities Commons is one of these. Sort of multi-institutional, multidisciplinary repositories and social networks that right. brings together um, scholars, students, practitioners from all across the humanities to share their work um, and communicate with one another. It's fully not-for-profit. Um, it's directed by scholars and um, it's, it's growing quite rapidly. We've got 15,000 members now. Um, and are really looking at um, ways that the network can develop in order to facilitate better engagement within our fields. Awesome. That's
0: great. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Reframing History. Thank you for listening to Reframing History. This is an anchor podcast that you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please join us again for our next episode.